Someday Jesus is coming back for us. Don't you long for that day? It could be soon. In the meantime, we are to occupy ourselves in honoring and praising the Lord together, rejoicing in his presence and thankful for his salvation. What a rich privilege it is to be together this morning and to do that. This past Christmas season, there was uh, quite an emotionally charged debate um, among church leaders. It may not have touched your world so much, but it certainly touched mine. as to whether or not we would hold Sunday services on Christmas Day. I actually chose to stay out of the fray while I heard all the things going on in Facebook discussions of pastors with each other about why they should or why they should not have church on Christmas Sunday. I was gripped by the irony of it all to be honest, why we would spend emotional time struggling to decide whether or not on Christmas Sunday we would gather and worship the Christ of Christmas. I mean, all these same people are babbling all season long about Jesus is the reason for the season but not for Christmas Sunday. <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I was kind of speechless. That's why I stayed out of the fray. I, just did, I didn't want to enter into it. I just thought this is so ridiculous and sad. Do we even know who Jesus is? Do, do we even know what we are doing do, do we even know why we are doing what we are doing? Now, I, I, you know, I don't mean to make anybody feel bad who might be listening and hear this sermon, any of my friends who decided not to have church on Christmas Sunday. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do here at all. I just sometimes think that we need to think carefully about the whole idea of not gathering for worship, but rather staying home as a testament to the idolatry of our consumerism. is a bad look for the church, a very bad look. The one thing I didn't want to see happen in Oshawa is on Christmas Sunday morning, for people who don't know Jesus to be driving to Aunt Mary's house for Christmas and drive by our parking lot and see it empty. There's something that was just distasteful to me about that. Especially for people who are searching for answers in life. And especially coming off of a season of locking down and shutting down churches. So, 
this same kind of thing was happening in Jesus' day when he walked among us. The text we're going to look at this morning, John chapter 5, begins this way. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. That phrase really jumped out at me. A feast of the Jews. That's kind of what Christmas was for many people, just a feast of people. Each of these festivals, the point of these festivals is God. And the Son of God walking among them is the fulfillment of the feasts. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the three biggies. Jesus is there. And it's called a feast of the Jews. You know why? Because that's all it basically was. It was just a feast of the Jews. Nothing whatsoever to do with God anymore. It's so easy for us, for the church, to just become a gathering for people, a social club, a social idea. Do we know why we meet? Do we know in whose audience we are? Do we understand what we have just done together this morning and praising and singing and praying and baptism? And do we, do we have any idea of the glory of having the presence of the living God among us? I'm getting wound up too early in the sermon. <laughs> Would you look at John chapter 5 with me, please? Got to reel this back in. Jesus is apparently at his feast aiding and abetting a crime. I got to sit down for that. Okay. I'm going to read in sections and comment on sections today, so bear with me and let me just ask the Lord to open up our hearts to this essential text of Scripture. Our Father, I pray this morning that you would truly open our hearts to your word. Uh, Father, I pray for those who might be among us or listening to us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that your word would penetrate encrusted hearts today. or or hearts of those who belong to you but have become encrusted themselves, oh Lord, are missing the point, are missing a sweet communion with you. I pray, oh God, that today would be a very powerful day for your name's sake, because you are a glorious and great God. We love you. We thank you for the work that you've already done in hearts this morning. We thank you for the testimony of salvation, O oh Lord. Our hearts leapt for joy this morning to hear of the faithful work of our, of our God who saves people. And we know, Lord, that you are saving more. O oh Lord, save more and then save some more, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometime later, John chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. 
Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I, I hope you gather for a second your, your thoughts in this verse and who he's talking to and the pool and the water and the, the God of glory, the healing God of glory juxtaposed. Yeah, and Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let me just pause for a second. Just throw this in at no extra charge. Sometimes, but not always, sometimes the plight that happens to you is because of your sin. You know, we're familiar with reading later on about the blind man who sinned, his mother, his father, all that. No, not this was to show the glory of God. And so we become accustomed to maybe going too far the other way and suggesting, oh, well, you know, sin is never connected to something bad that we've done. It, it regularly is. And it appears... You see when Jesus says, see you are well again, it means that he was well at one point. And something he did caused his disability that was sinful. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. We'll stop there. So the crime. Jesus is breaker of the Sabbath law. Now, if this is so, Jesus couldn't have died for our sins. Because Jesus would be a sinner. So there are three annual festivals. I talked to you about them in the Passover, which is in the spring, that were obligatory. You had to attend. Males within 20 miles of these festivals had to attend. So you've got the the Passover in the spring, seven weeks later or 50 days, you've got Pentecost. 
No, Pentecost didn't start at Pentecost. It was an ongoing festival. And then you've got the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. The, interestingly, the Pentecost is the, is the celebration, the festival of first fruits. God does things very, very particularly. So you have the, the celebration of first fruits, the harvest, and then tabernacles is the, the fall harvest, the fullness of God's, what God has given. But the point of all of them is God. And ultimately finding fulfillment in Jesus. That's the point. Now, now the pool of Bethesda is, um, could be translated the, the house of mercy, the the Beth Chesed. And it's, the idea here was the stirring of the waters. It was, it's a spring. In fact, it's, it's being continually excavated even today. You can go there, and, and every time you go there, if you've been there before, they've got more excava- excavations done, and it's quite remarkable. And um, it's juxtaposed to St. Anne's Church, which is Mary's mother, well, you know, there's some things that other religions do. But anyway, it's, it's there. And the, it's a spring. It's a natural spring. And every so often, as springs do, there'd be like a buildup of, of a backup of water, and it would bubble up, bubble forth. And, and the idea was, from, the, from these people, was that angels were stirring the water. And if you got into the water first... It was a lottery system. If you could get into the water first, you could get healed. And and the irony oozes out of this moment because here you have Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, okay? Almighty God himself being called to account while the religious leaders were encouraging and entrenching and institutionalizing superstition as part of the healing system. There's no healing going on at the pool of Bethesda because people fell into the pool first. Now the Sabbath day, you know, fell on the feast week, which is... The big day of the feast week is the Sabbath. And when the Sabbath falls on the feast week, it's like a double dip. I mean, it's a big deal, right? Like Christmas, for instance, on Sunday. It's a big deal. That's what happened. And the works of God were supposed to be the point. Not opening presents. Not superstitious pools. And here Jesus works a man from trusting in superstition to trusting in the word of God, obeying Jesus. This is, what, this is what he's being charged of. He's being charged of moving someone from superstition and the belief in superstition to the obedience of the word of God. And the Jews' response was to threaten the healed man and persecute Jesus. That, so that, that brings us to where we're at. This is the dilemma. This is the moment we're at. This is the charge. 
This is the crime. Encrusted layers of rules and regulations always ruin God's gracious law. Result in an addiction to the power that comes with being a religious sheriff. And there are a lot of them in our world who love to wear their robes and swing their censers and call other people sinners. And the pride of external accomplishment. Now you're saying to me, wait a second, I know there are scripture texts that say you shouldn't be carrying something around on the Sabbath day. I'm not going to take the time today because I really, really desperately want to get to the application this morning. But suffice it to say, and I'll give you the text, Jeremiah 17, verse 19 and following, Nehemiah, verse 13, 15 and following. Let me put them in context for you. Yes, it does talk about carrying things. But in each of these cases, it talks about carrying things for the purposes of vocation. For the purposes of marketing and selling on the Sabbath. Not a man who is carried in on a mat and gets to carry the mat away because of a miracle of God. For 38 years, do you want to get well? What you've been doing hasn't been working for you. You had a whole world of people who are unhealthy spiritually. Do they want to get well? Whatever you've been doing for the last 38 years just hasn't been working, has it? You've been relying on superstition, on luck, hoping you might get the lottery, you might hit the jackpot somehow. I don't know what you're, you're hoping for. Yeah, Jesus had violated the rabbinic law. But the rabbinic law was long ago far from God's law. They had added 39 categories to what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Not just 39 things. 39 categories. And they loved to... Sheriff, you know, you give somebody a blazer with a crest and put them on, you know, in charge of something, and they just like, they love to wander around Jerusalem pointing out people who were more sinful than they were because they didn't know the subtle nuances of the 39 categories of what they could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. Spending more time thinking about, am I violating the rabbinic law? We still have this nonsense today. We still have all of this flurry of craziness. You go to the Middle East today, still have all this kind of stuff. Elevators that go to every floor so you don't have to touch the button because that'd be a violation of rabbinic law. I got to stop at all 14 floors. Somehow I'm honoring God. I mean, come on. Fighting, arguing. We got our, we've, we've had our, our share of Sunday things too. The thing about workspace religions 
they're easily policed, they're easily practiced, and they're easily faked. And that's the vast majority of religion in a nutshell. So Jesus answers the charge. Man, it would have been bad to be those guys that day. So Jesus says to them, verse 17, my father, so like guys, I've got news for you, okay? Listen up. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Yes. Yes, he was. Yes, he did. So let's review something here quickly. The Sabbath is a gift to man from God. It's a divinely given holiday. Now look, at we still have and practice the principle of one day a week of rest. We don't call it the Sabbath. We don't call today the Sabbath. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. But it is the day that most of us choose as the day of rest given to us by the Lord to rest from our vocations to demonstrate that we can trust God you don't have to work seven days a week you can trust God to provide for you he said he's he sanctified this day he set apart this day Exodus 20 set apart for the holy contemplation of God it's a set apart day so that we don't have to work so that we can devote our attention to God there should be nothing that crowds in on this for you. There should be nothing that, that, that gets in the way of this. This is a special thing God has given to, to us. It's a gift. God says, take a holiday. Each week, take, take a day. Take a holiday that you might turn your attention fully to me and not to your work. That's what the Sabbath is. It's a day of rest from vocation. It wasn't made for God. Say, wait a second, I thought God, God created in six days and then he took a rest himself. Yes, he set an example of creation. He, the creation, yes, he stopped creating. But he didn't stop looking after the creation. If he did, we all keel over this morning. If God stops working... We stop working. You understand that? That's why, that's why Jesus says to him, hey, my father is always at his work, and you should be thankful that he is. Not only that, he's gracious to you. He's always at his work. Babies are born on the Sabbath. Tell a woman that she hasn't worked on that day. Healings happen on Sunday, the Sabbath, or whichever day you're 
Natural systems must, must keep in operation. Divine interventions thankfully still happen on the day of rest. Near misses thankfully happen on the day of rest because the Father's working today. And the Father was at work healing this man. And Jesus says, I too am working. Now, they didn't dispute that the Father was working, by the way, because it would have been insanity. But now, they're really struggling. They're really tied up in knots because Jesus has just declared himself the privilege of Father prerogatives. And I get to work today, too. Hmm. Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He drops a bombshell. So now he's guilty of a second crime to them. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is making himself equal with God. Jesus claims equal standing with God. Make no mistake about it. Who's ever hearing this, whatever religious background or whatever religion you're engaged in, one thing you can't say is that Jesus never claimed to be God because he does all over here. Can't have Jesus as a human teacher prophet. He won't accept it. So he has made himself equal with God. And Jesus claims the right to do what God does. The authority to determine what work is to be done on the Sabbath. God is working on the Sabbath. I'm working on the Sabbath. And I have the right to decide what work needs to be done on the Sabbath. And I decided that I'm, I should be healing on the Sabbath. That's what I've decided. And you have just witnessed a man liberated. The man who's now carrying what used to carry and control him. That's what salvation is like. The things that previously were dominating our lives that we couldn't get away from, we now have total control over because the Holy Spirit gives us that. It's a beautiful picture. What was carrying him, he now gets to carry. It's fantastic. So at this point, Jesus places humanity on trial concerning himself. The charges have been laid. You're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. You're guilty of blasphemy in the court of public opinion or a court of religious opinion. And now Jesus puts them on trial and us. Jesus now turns into defense attorney and witness and at the end becomes prosecuting attorney just for good measure. John 5 is one of the most amazing chapters of Holy Scripture. It establishes 
incontrovertibly who Jesus is and lays out for us the responsibility of deciding who we are. It, it sets before us in the court of Jesus a decision that must be made. We are forced to judge ourselves. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. This text places the judgment on us. You will judge yourselves today. Everybody here and everybody listening will judge themselves today by what you do with this text. There's no turning back now for Jesus. It, it becomes rough from this point on. They were tolerating him in the early chapters of John. But now, it's straightway to the cross. So he testifies to himself as defense attorney and witness. Says to them, you think that's something? Listen to this. Verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. In other words, um, gentlemen, if you are critiquing the work that was just done on this man who was disabled, you are critiquing the work of God Almighty, who you claim so piously to be serving. Because I don't do anything by myself. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son, listen, does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man." Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to, to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Quite an opening argument, wouldn't you say? by the defense attorney. Let's recap it. Seven, and there may be more here, but seven, from, from what I see, seven pieces of evidence 
that Jesus puts before them. My father is at work, I too am working. Jesus' work is the same as God's work. Jesus is declaring himself the son of God. Do you remember what the, what the goal is of John's gospel again? That you might believe, by now you've all memorized it, haven't you? That you might believe, come with me, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John 20, 31. These things are written that you might believe. And we've been spending our first few chapters on that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah. Today, we now move to that Jesus is Son, the Son of God. You must believe he's Messiah. You must believe he's Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. He's laying out the evidence here of the declaration in his opening arguments of who he is. I'm the Son of God. The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. He's clearly not showing you, or you wouldn't be chirping at me right now. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life. Judgment has been entrusted to the Son. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word. Son, connection, measures, righteousness. God, has hand, Father, has handed over judgment to the Son. Honor due the Father is due the Son. To dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. To, listen, are we hearing to dishonor Jesus? Whatever religion you're messing around with, to honor Jesus any Less than God is to dishonor God. And then for all of us, we rejoice in this. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father, has eternal life. If you can hear the word of God and believe, if you can hear the word of Jesus and obey Jesus, you have eternal life. You will not be condemned, but rather will have crossed over from death to life. The dead will hear. He says, I tell you the truth. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come. In, in my arrival, in Jesus' arrival, and has now come, when the dead will hear, not people who are in the grave, spiritually dead will hear. He talks about the grave after this. Will, who are spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, those who are enabled to hear by God will live. Can you hear him? Can you obey him? 
You have to be resurrected before you die in order to be resurrected after you die. Your soul must be resurrected. Your dead spiritual life must be resurrected before you die in order for you to be resurrected to eternal life. This is Jesus' opening arguments. And I'm sure they crossed their arms, looked at him, and said anyone can witness to themselves. That doesn't prove anything. And the skeptics who read the scriptures say, sure, Jesus says this about himself. And what court of law do you get to be the defense attorney and the witness for yourself and the jury's going to rule in your favor? When does that ever happen? Jesus was saying, I was waiting for you to ask me that. When he says this, verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. And then he goes on to produce four other witnesses. The first witness here in verse 31 is the father. Jesus now calls five witnesses to the witness bench and questions them. Now, his first in 32 is the father, but I'm going to start with John the Baptist. He says, my first witness I call is John the Baptist. you, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but... I mention it that you might may be saved, just this little detail. I, I just mentioned this in passing, that you might be saved. So it might be important to you to listen. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Oh, don't we love John's preaching? Isn't he entertaining? Odd dude. Wearing a hairy garment, eating locusts and honey dunking people in the Jordan River. He's amusing. This is often what preachers become. They're just, just amusing, entertaining. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish in which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Can you imagine being told that as a religious leader? You've never heard the voice of God nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Let's stop here. Five witnesses, quickly. John the Baptist. A human lamp, not the true light, but one who gave testimony to the truth of the gospel, just like preachers today, continuing to give truth of the gospel. And you need to listen to this, Jesus says, that you might be saved. You need to hear the word of God. That's how you're saved, to listen, to obey it. 
And then there's the works of Jesus, the signs upcoming the cross and the resurrection yet to come, the mighty works that you're yet to see raised from the dead, quite a sign. You might want to listen to someone who brings that kind of thing that can, can raise from the dead. And God the Father, at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God had already testified to him. God had testified in their presence and was going to at the Mount of Transfiguration. He thus says it again. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. My father has already testified. We could go on. The the scriptures are the fourth testimony, the fourth witness. The scriptures all over, everywhere, speaks of Jesus, Messiah. Uh, If you want to look something up that's really powerful, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, particularly verse 6, as it corroborates everything that Jesus has been doing. And then finally he says, and Moses. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come to my father's na- in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from uh, another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed in Moses, you would actually believe in me. For he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Quite an indictment. Jesus turns prosecutor. Moses wrote about him in Genesis 3.15 and then track the Pentateuch. Track, Track the scriptures yourself that you so admire that you study diligently, thinking that the more you know, the more sure you're going to be going to heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. The scriptures don't save you. I save you. They testify to me, Jesus says. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. What do you think, Jesus says, what do you think Moses was talking about there? you learned scholars who know so much about the scriptures that you strain at gnats because some disabled man is carrying his mat around on Sabbath day? You know so much, but you don't know what really matters? He prosecutes his accusers. I know you don't love God, he says to them. If you love God, if you love God, you love Jesus. Verse 43, if you love God, you love Jesus. Don't tell me you love God. Don't anybody tell me you love God if you don't love Jesus. Don't tell me that. Because Jesus wouldn't accept it. I'm not going to accept it. Don't tell me anybody you listening online that you love God. Oh, I love God. But Jesus, I'm not so sure about. No, you don't love God. If you love God, you would love Jesus. He states it. And the reason you accept false teaching and anything that you hear and anything that you see, any false ideas, is because you prefer the praise of perverse men over the praise of God. That's the story of church right now, the broader church. The broader church is accepting anything and everything for the praise of perverse people. That's what this is all about. It's the same thing. Rather than the praise of God. Jesus said, don't tell me you love God. You love the praise of perverse people. That's what you love. Anybody shows up in his own name with his own weird idea and you accept him. 
I show up in the name of God Almighty and you want to persecute me? You want to kill me? It just tells me how perverse your heart is and how perverse the hearts of the culture is today in our culture, how perverse the hearts are of church leaders today in our culture. They don't know God. They wouldn't have the faintest eye. If, if God walked into their presence, they wouldn't recognize him. This is closing arguments. The judge slams his gavel down on the table. The implications of Jesus' legal defense. The reality of Jesus demands a verdict, beloved. It absolutely demands a verdict. Your reality checklist is this this morning. With this, I'll close. Six things. Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father. And you can't have life in his name unless you believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father in heaven. Second, if you don't believe what Moses said, how will you believe what Jesus said? I was listening to the Oxford Club debates this week. The intellectual giants of England assembled at the Oxford Club. The drama of the event was to determine whether or not gay marriage was legitimate. Now you've got the brain trust of the next 50 years gathered in a room. And one of the women got up and said, Creation is a metaphor of a metaphoric, benevolent God. You know what that means? That redemption's a metaphor of a benevolent, possible, divine idea that has been entrusted to us to determine. Make no mistake about it. When you stop believing the Holy Scriptures from cover to cover as they are given that our God created this universe in six literal days. If you won't believe that, Jesus says, because you're trying to appease perverse scientific minds, you won't believe me. Do you believe Moses? Third, you are not really alive until Christ is in you and you are in Christ. You're spiritually dead until Jesus makes you alive. Is Jesus in you? Are you in Jesus? This is verdict time, beloved. Fourth, as the Son obeys the Father and is loved by Him, so you love the Father by obeying the Son. 
This is how we actually know we love God and are loved by God. We obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you obey him? Tell me you love God and start getting scissors out and cutting pieces of your Bible out. I'm not buying it. Jesus isn't buying it. Fifth, Jesus is the measure by which all people, including you and me, actually judge themselves. If you find in Jesus the desire of your heart, then you are on the life way. But if you reject Jesus and any value he might have to you, you condemn yourself. It's verdict, one way or the other. He is either the desire of your heart or you place no value in him. There's no other middle ground. There's nothing else. There's, he's either the desire of your heart or you place no value in him. Do you hold him as the desire of your heart? And finally, you cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. There is no room for any religion or belief system that claims to have a God but doesn't honor Jesus Christ as God. There is no religion or belief system that is legitimate unless Jesus Christ is honored as very God and Savior. Do you honor Jesus Christ as Savior and God? Do you know your ultimate purpose in life? The reason you exist? The reason that God created you? You were made for God. That's your purpose. That's it. You do all kinds of other things and contribute to life, but your purpose, your ultimate purpose is to, you were made for God. And Jesus Christ is the way to God because he is God. I, I just remark over and over again, it's a fine, a remarkable verse to hear. Verse 25 of this text. The dead, meaning those who are spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. If you hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling you to himself, you are a most blessed human being. There's no greater call in all of life. There is no greater voice to hear in all of the universe, in all of the days of your life, than to hear Jesus call you to himself. And if you hear that voice and you respond to it, the promise to you is you will live forever. So um, I'm going to pray and I'm going to just once again say to you this morning, 
that this is an opportunity for anyone who's here whose heart has either grown cold toward Jesus or you don't know Jesus at all, but you hear his voice calling you. I'm going to go down to the front here again this morning and the musicians are going to sing and we're going to sing. And if God, if you are hearing the voice of Jesus Christ calling you this morning, I'm going to invite you to take a step of faith and come and walk down to the front of this church and stand with me here and we will rejoice that life is coming to you together. Our Father and our God, we pray and thank you for your word. It's powerful. Thank you for Jesus Christ. He has set before us the trial of the century, the trial of, the trial of the ages, the trial of the epochs. And we have found him entirely glorious, not guilty of the charges. He did not break the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He did not blaspheme. He is God. And he is our Savior. And many and most of us here have heard his voice. And we've heard it again fresh today from the word of God. I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit might draw people to yourself by the power of your word to them today. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Behold, O oh Lord, your people who praise your name today. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You are our life. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the word of Jesus Christ, the saving word of Christ who has been heard and you have saved us. You have saved us to praise you, to serve you, to obey you, to adore you, to love one another, to testify to your salvation. So may we today, O oh Lord, leave this place filled with the Spirit filled with the presence of God, rejoicing and overjoyed with our salvation. We ask all of this in the powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Amen and amen.